0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lubetzky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces sweet and savory bars with whole nuts, spices, and fruit, among other products. Kind is sold in a diversity of locations, including Whole Foods, Costco, Amtrak trains, and newspaper stands. Daniel is also the founder of PeaceWorks, a producer of Mediterranean spreads such as tapenades, hummus, and baba ganoush. PeaceWorks aims to foster business relationships among neighbors in the Middle East and other groups in conflict as a way to reduce conflict in those regions. Daniel grew up in Mexico City and speaks Spanish, English, Hebrew, and French, and a little bit of Yiddish, no? Yeah. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Jessica.
0: Before we dig into Kind, I want to talk about PeaceWorks which was the company you founded in 1993 that focuses on Mediterranean spreads. What was the germ for founding this food company in the early 90s?
1: I didn't know it was gonna be a food company. It was more about trying to use business as a force for bringing Arabs and Israelis together That was what I was very passionate about since uh, writing my college thesis and law school work about how to use market forces to help trading partners shatter cultural stereotypes, cement relations with each other. So that was the impetus of what I was doing. And it became a food company because as I was looking for ventures, I was looking in apparel, I was looking in uh, Dead Sea Minerals, and food became the area where I found my passions best. Uh, I didn't understand that some minerals too well, but I understood food, and And, that's how it started.
0: And so food was secondary uh, to the primary mission was to facilitate joint ventures among uh, conflicting neighbors. So what's an example of a collaboration which you established at PeaceWorks between two conflicting groups?
1: Well, the flagship venture, which still exists today, which is how we started, was um, my discovery of a sundried tomato spread. And when I, long story short, found out, the company had gone bankrupt because it was sourcing its glass jars from Portugal and its sundried tomatoes from Italy, and it was very expensive. And when I came to Yoel Benesh, the Israeli manufacturer, and told him about my ideas, he had Arab friends, and he really believed in the philosophy of what we're trying to do with PeaceWorks. But I also showed him that he could benefit economically, that he could buy the glass jars from Egypt instead of Portugal, the sundried tomatoes from Turkish suppliers instead of um, Italian ones. So they started buying basil and olives and olive oil from Palestinian citizens of the West Bank and Gaza, and that's how it started.
0: How did you secure distribution in the United States with PeaceWorks? Can you walk through that process? Because in a way, uh, you piggybacked on that uh, with kind.
1: Well, I didn't know what I was doing, so I emptied my... Brief my legal briefcase, literally I have this big briefcase for carrying uh, legal documents, and I filled it up with jars of sundried tomato spreads, basil pestos, olive spreads. And I would start at the top of Broadway on one hundred and twenty second street on the west side, and then just start walking store by store till I would go at seven a m. in the morning until I would end at seven p m at night in the bottom of Wall Street and then I would cross the next day and I would go up uh, Broadway on the other side of Broadway. And Broadway was an important choice because it was the, the avenue that I found to have the most concentration of grocery stores. So, so I, I knew 2nd Avenue, I knew 3rd Avenue, I knew Madison. I did all of them. But Broadway was the juiciest. And I would not go to the next store unless I got either an order or an explanation for what I needed to do different in order to get an order the next time. And I drove many people nuts because everything was wrong. But they were basically taught me like Scott Goldshine and Mr. Zabar from Zabar's, basically taught me what the consumers were looking for. So I really learned a lot of what I do today from all the store managers and buyers at the grocery shops and bodegas in New York City.
0: What is an example of something that Mr Zabar, you know, taught you? Just
1: <laughs> um <laughs> Everything. I mean, I came in and they didn't have much patience because they had thousands of consumers going around and here I am and I don't know what I'm doing. But they they really liked that I, they really cared about my mission. And I think they just had patience with me. So they taught me how, what is the margin requirements for for a retailer, for a distributor, and for yourself so that you can run an ongoing business. Um, They taught me about the labels, how to make sure that the name is clear. The jars back then were oozing olive oil out of them, and (laughs) that was not acceptable. So it was a lot of sessions.
0: You mentioned that you had a law degree. You went to Stanford Law School, and you became a lawyer. Uh, And the idea for PeaceWorks came out of a paper, your thesis that you wrote, which I believe was entitled Incentives for Peace and Profits, Federal Legislation to Encourage U.S. Enterprises to Invest in Arab-Israeli Joint Ventures.
1: Yeah, it became a very famous document among doctors because if you were having insomnia and were having trouble falling asleep, they would give it to you, you would read it, and you would fall asleep immediately (laughs) because it was the most theoretical, boring thing in the world. It was... (laughs) Totally devoid of practical use, but it was beautiful theoretically.
0: You dabbled in the law uh, before starting businesses. You had a stint at Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, You clerked for Supreme Justice in Texas. Did you think that you might want a career in law?
1: I loved the law. It was not that I was trying to escape the law. I just had this, you called it germ. I had this bug inside me that, that I just really felt that my mission in life was to try to build bridges and to and the Arab-Israeli conflict, and suddenly here's the Oslo peace process. So all my ideas that I've been sharing for several years, suddenly they go from being delusional to being uh, slightly tenable. And I'm like, all right, I have to try to pursue it, and I have to try it.
0: You also had a kind of a social ethos in your family. Your father was a prominent figure uh, in your upbringing and the way you think about the world. He was a Holocaust survivor, having survived Dachau, the concentration camp in Germany. Can you talk a little bit about him?
1: Yeah, my dad was uh, my greatest hero and role model. Uh, He was the most humble person. He built himself from scratch. He came to Mexico after the war. He was 15 and a half years old when the war started, 16 when he got to Mexico. He didn't speak Spanish or English. He's Uh, from
0: Lithuania originally. Yeah, he
1: was born in Riga, Latvia and raised in Lithuania when he was nine years old, 1939 um, the war started, and I'll tell you the story. It's a little strong, but um, he was coming back with his uh, father to the apartment house where they lived, and the superintendent showed them into where the garage was. And he opened the door of the garage, and there was a pile of bodies. And he told my grandfather, "You see all these people? They're all the Jews in the building," and you're lucky that you always were nice to me and treated with, with me respect and kindness, so I spared you and your family, but get out before I change my mind. So that night, my father, who was 9 years old, and his brother and my grandfather and grandmother packed whatever they could carry, and then they left into a ghetto. And uh, that was a story that my dad told me when I was 9 years old, and my mom said, Roman, what are you doing? This kid is 9 years old, you know. You're going to, what are you doing? Please stop telling this. And my dad said, look, he's nine years old and he needs to hear it. Mm -hmm. I was nine years old and I needed to live it. But the other thing that was no less powerful and important was the stories that he told me about people that in the worst of circumstances would rise up and do something kind, like this German soldier that threw a potato to him. And my dad used to tell the story about how he felt he was going to die and he was really malnourished and that potato meant for him the difference w- w- and survival and uh, the soldier took a risk by giving him food for, for the soldiers. So those were the stories that I most admired, the way my dad always remembered the moments of kindness. I mean, it's the darkest of moments. And um, there's a quote that I I really love that connects to that about from rabbi Hillel that says in a place where there is no humanity strive thou to be human
0: so the the name kind healthy snacks did your father have influence on the naming of the product
1: the the name kind was created by my team and I it's really fascinating that we finally zoned in on it because it wasn't today it's so obvious that that's perfect name for us but back then we had all these crazy ideas for the name the reason we came up with kind is that it had human attributes that we were really trying to aspire to be a part, to to define us you know to do the kind thing for your body to do the kind thing for your taste buds, and to do the kind thing for your world.
0: It's striking that your father uh, was very forthcoming with his stories and chose to talk about the wartime versus others who really receded and did not tell their family uh, such stories, just uh, more for self-preservation and family's preservation than anything. What was the impetus for your family's, uh, your father's moving to Mexico, of all places? Uh, Jessica, after can the I war? just comment
1: on the thing you just said because it's really important. I was surrounded by other Holocaust survivors growing up and they I loved them dearly, but you could tell that they were just consumed by the horrible horrors that they had gone through and they couldn't have a positive outlook. And my dad or or there were others that were able to just shut it out and just have a positive life moving forward. My dad had the strength to recall those horrors, but in a positive way. And still he was such a sweet, kind hearted man, very gregarious, always making people laugh, Always, almost like he saw his mission to make people have a better day and make people laugh. Did you see the movie Uh, Life is Beautiful? Mm -hmm. So when I saw that movie, I, I, I cried a lot, and then I was a little bit troubled because I felt guilty to be laughing also. And I asked my dad, you know, it never crossed my mind that in such horrible circumstances you could actually say jokes in the middle of a concentration camp. And my dad said... The opposite, the only reason my dad felt that he survived is because my grandfather was a really funny mm. joke teller and he would entertain the, the Jewish inmates and the German soldiers with funny stories and make people more humane and more human by making them laugh and just find, particularly in those those more dark moments, some, some levity.
0: You were brought up in Mexico City. How was being Jewish uh, in a predominantly Christian place?
1: Well, I also lived in a very insulated cocoon. You pointed out earlier, I I learned Yiddish at an early age. And I learned Yiddish before I learned Hebrew or English. And for my mom, it was very important that I built bridges. So she introduced me to this kid named Luis who we made play dates in our neighborhood for me to be friends with him and I was in such a cocoon that you know we were playing once and I said you know if you do this I'm going to kick you in the tuches and he says what? what is this tuches thing? and I'm like yeah, Stop joking. Tuches, tushin, you're, you're, you're <laughs> back, you're behind, your ass. And he's like, No, that's nalga. I, I didn't know that tuches was a word in Yiddish. There were many other words that I can't tell you right now mm-hmm. because they're stronger that I thought were Spanish, but were actually Yiddish. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the world that I was raised in. And I, I think my mom uh, was the one that gave us the impetus to make sure that we always built uh, relationships with people that were different from us
0: i'm jessica harris you're listening to from scratch my guest is daniel Lebetsky, founder of kind healthy snacks we'll hear more from daniel coming up I'm Jessica Harris, you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lebetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces sweet and savory bars with a variety of whole nuts, spices, and fruit, among other products like granola. Daniel launched Kind in 2003 and its products can be found in several diverse locations ranging from Whole Foods to convenience stores and gas stations. So here you are, you founded PeaceWorks, you were running this this Mediterranean food spread company, and what was the germ then for, for Kind Bars?
1: I was traveling all over and I was very frustrated with my lack of healthy snacking options. It felt that If it was healthful and wholesome, it would not travel well. And what would travel well was either too indulgent or tasted like cardboard or was just totally artificial. I didn't find something that fit with what I was looking for. So my impetus was trying. I was always on the lookout for healthy snacks. And uh, kind was the recognition that there were not those options.
0: What did you grab in, uh, before you concocted the kind bars? What are some of the things? I truly, sincerely did not
1: have very good options. I I would take sometimes just nuts and fruit, but then the nuts you overate them because you couldn't do portion control. Which nuts? Almonds, primarily uh, raw almonds. Yeah, of course I also ate muffins, and I also still today eat you know uh, some indulgent snacks here and there. I'm not I'm not perfect, but. More and more, I think, every day for me it's a journey to try to, uh, to improve my, my lifestyle. I eat two kind bars every single day, no less than two. Today I've had three so far.
0: How many varieties as of now are there of kind bars?
1: I think we have like 25 flavors of kind bars.
0: Do you worry at all about the burden of choice? I enjoy your bars, but I, I'm a little overwhelmed when I'm like, oh, I don't know, just give me yes. four choices.
1: I, I agree. It's a very, very tough challenge. Did you read the book Paradox of Choice?
0: Uh, no, but I understand the phenomenon. That's they, how I feel.
1: Sometimes you feel paralyzed by right. those choices. So I, I think we do need to. We look at this constantly, and it is a, a balance because when when we discontinue products, the first right. person to pick up the phone is my brothers. Like, why do you always discontinue the ones that are my favorites? Because you always find someone that was the biggest fan of that walnut date or the sesame. Uh, chocolate and they were among our lowest turning items but they had a core following of fans and so that's the tricky and each of them is like your children you love them all so you don't want to like right. give the death to anyone but you have to you have to be disciplined
0: so returning to the early days of kind here you are like Willy Loman uh, selling uh, your <laughs> your piece works that's from Death of a Salesman by the way I know. selling your, your piece works I know
1: Willy Loman too well I, I can tell you my Willy Loman moment please uh, I'm in Waldbaum's, which is a grocery uh, chain at their headquarters, and I look around. It's all vinyl furniture from the 1960s. Everybody surrounding me is like 50 years older than me, and they all have sampling suitcases like mine. And I'm like, wow, what am I doing with my life? And and uh, this was a, a, a very tough moment right before the launch of Kind. Little did I know that after 10 years of killing myself, success was just around the corner. Oh, my God, we've been trying so hard, and it just hasn't worked out.
0: With this Mediterranean spread company.
1: Yeah, with the with the they were great products, but there was a very small niche, and there was a thousand things that I had done wrong. And I'm just like, wow, you know, I threw away my law career. My daddy's worried. My mommy's worried. And am I ever going to get married? Am I going to have children? <laughs> but but I, I really, you know, we were having such difficult time making ends meet, just being able to make payroll, and just I had to take a $24,000 salary for many years, and many months I could not even pay myself uh, my my monthly uh, um, portion. And then, you know, a couple years later, suddenly kind, we, we finally hit it with kind, and then it just explodes. It just shows you that when you believe in something, you should be careful not to give up, because right. it can be just around the corner.
0: In that dark place, uh, little did you know that uh, the success of KIND was almost in your grasp. You continued to go door-to-door, still after over a decade of this PeaceWorks company. You were fortunate, though, because you had this uh, distribution network in place, uh, albeit small, that the Mediterranean spreads was the Trojan horse for your KIND bars.
1: We were fortunate, above all, that people liked us. That people thought, these guys deserve a break. a break. And I think that was there was a lot of goodwill in there. Uh if you had asked me the year when we launched Kind whether I knew that it was gonna succeed and be explosive, of course I believed in it, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But I to be sincere, and I consider myself a person that has a good vision and and, and, and can dream, I could could have never imagined that kind would become what it became
0: one of the innovations of kind was that they were you know actual nuts and fruit and that they weren't pasty why are so many bars historically that are sold in retail kind of of that you know th- that pasty consistency
1: well it's easier to run product through the line if it's a paste or an emulsion. It's called a slab bar in our space because it goes slabs of product that fall in the sheeter and they are all homogeneous and they all run through the line very efficiently. So it's a very efficient way to run a lot of product very fast. And when we came up with our, the temerity to try to think of it differently, a lot of times the manufacturers that we approached th- said, you know, it's not practical for us because your runs are very low and it's so much less efficient to run your product. It was hard to convince not just the manufacturers, but even the retailers. We would go with our products and show them our whole mutton fruit bars, and they'd say, yeah, where do I put your product? I'm like, well, next to all these other nutritional bars. They're like, no, 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 that's not a nutritional bar. Let me show you what a nutritional bar looks like. And they'd show us the, the, the slab bars, and it was very hard to convince them to give us a shot in those sets.
0: You were selling a product that you would say that you could, uh, whose ingredients you could see and pronounce. And uh, why was the clear package, uh, you know, such an innovation? Why were there opaque packages before? I mean, it seems it seems like common sense, but you know, what, what's so what's what's the big deal?
1: The most uh, obvious things may not seem obvious before they're done, right? So when when we were doing it, the conventional wisdom was that you had to use opaque film to prevent the product from oxidizing, from losing moisture, and that you needed to use aluminum foil or other opaque materials. We worked really hard in creating clear wrappers with the technology, that it could have all those properties through clear foam. It's actually deceptively simple, but it was very hard to achieve that.
0: I'm Jessica Harris, you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lebetsky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces bars with whole nuts and fruit, among other products. I want to talk about nuts for a moment. I'm partial to almonds. There are rankings of, of nuts that are more nutritional than others and more rare. And um, teach me something about nuts.
1: Um, depends on which industry association you talk to. They each are going to tell you that theirs are better. But certainly I think the consensus is that almonds, walnuts uh, are among the most helpful or a very helpful category. But everything that's nuts, pecans, uh, pistachios, cashews. cashews also have some role. Cashews have more fat than, than, uh, than almonds and walnuts. But what's more important to highlight is, did you read about the Harvard study? There was a study uh, that came out by, by the Harvard School of Medicine that if you eat more nuts, you will live longer. It was, like, staggering. I actually used to, when I even when I launched kind and I knew it was a healthful product, I used to be very careful about not eating more than one kind bar a day because I just felt that I don't want to eat too many fats. And the data indicates that what's powerful about nuts, at a minimum, is that they're highly satiating, and so they displace empty calories. And then on top of that, the nuts have the fats that are helpful Healthing. to your uh, heart that help reduce your bad cholesterol levels. So I, I do think that fundamentally nuts are an important building block.
0: You mentioned almonds and walnuts. Are they more expensive?
1: Yeah. In- on average, I think uh, almonds are increasing in price. We just had a very tough crop where our prices went way up. There's a huge problem right now with bees. Bees are dying and almost like 70% of all of our human consumption is pollinated by bees, and bees are dying by hordes, and they have to transport them and pollinate different farms, and then the transportation and the, the monopollination may be contributing to this problem of, of uh, bee collapse. It's a very serious, very scary problem.
0: Regarding distribution, was there an important relationship or kind of pivot uh, that caused the floodgates to open on the distribution front?
1: It's all been very gradual. Uh, we did it the right way this time because before, as a, when I was starting, I used to try to be everything, everywhere, as soon as you can. And you really need to be smart about your distribution and migration strategy. You need to first start with the product, the stores where you're most solid consumer and fans are going to be. So it's like the Whole Foods and Natural and the specialty stores. And so that's where we started. And we still today focus enormous efforts and marketing with our core because that's where they have traffic and loyal consumers, and only then we start going into national grocery chains and then convenience stores and, and specialty and alternative markets, and then only recently in the last couple of years that we start uh, going into mass accounts like whole, uh, Walmart and Target and clubs like Costco and Sam's. It was very steady and gradual.
0: You mentioned before that you paid yourself a twenty-four thousand dollars salary, uh, and initially your marketing budget for the first few years was, you know, like eight hundred dollars of your sampling budget, but your salary and the sampling budget took a turn in two thousand eight when you brought on private equity investors uh, in VMG, and they're a fund that uh, invests in consumer products. And Darius Bykoff, the founder of Vitamin Water, uh, or GLASSO, made that introduction. Correct. How do you know Darius?
1: So Darius was friends with Andy and Melissa Comer, who my dear friends for many years. And I was con- entertaining another Transaction and I asked Darius for advice. And I said, Do I need to do it this way, this way, this way, which I'm being told? And he said, No, you don't. You can do it whatever way you want. And let me actually introduce you to VMG and uh, we'll co invest. What I had done right until then was come up with a concept, with a product, with, with a good culture in the company. What I had not done right is that after 15 years of being in the wilderness, I was so scared to take risks and to invest in letting more people try our product. That's why our sampling budget was $800 because I saw that as a as an expense to be cut rather than as an investment. And then we suddenly realized, wow, nine out of ten people that try a kind bar become part of your franchise. And and so thanks to my partners, we built a phenomenal film marketing team to let people sample. And so from the first 2009, it was an $800,000 budget instead of $800 before. And then today, it's about thirteen million dollars that we go into just giving new kind bars to new consumers.
0: Uh, and then in spring two thousand fourteen, you bought back VMG's stake for two hundred and twenty million dollars, mostly cash deal, which was basically thirteen times their initial investment. Things have have come a long way since that Wallbaum's moment.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, and uh, the team that we have today in particular, is every morning I wake up and I feel so blessed and so grateful to be working with people that are better than I will ever be at what they do.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Daniel Lubetzky, founder of Kind Healthy Snacks, a food company that produces bars with whole nuts and spices and fruit, among other products like granolas. I want to go back to your family for a moment. You mentioned before uh, that your father had this positive uh, stance. Do you feel like that was a biological proclivity that he was just in- innately that way? You mentioned your grandfather was the same way. Well, um, oh, that's
1: a great question. I ask related questions all the time, but not particularly that question. It's a really great question. <sighs> I don't know. I, I do think that you know I have four children and from the day they're born, you can tell that they have personalities and it's fascinating and wonderful to see how they really are their own persons and they're quite different. I have twins and they are quite different from each other. But I also do think that nurture can guide a person and shape them. I think it's a combination of, uh, of DNA and genes and the environment. But then again, you know, how did my dad in such an environment manage to be such an extraordinarily sweet, warm, and loving person? Was it because by then, by the age of nine, he had already built it up?
0: Do you meditate or exercise to enhance? uh
1: I take a lot of time to think. We are so barraged with inputs like inbox, email, voicemail, Twitter, messengers, this, that. And you carry your smartphone everywhere you go and you're just constantly trying to keep up with the data and read more news. And we, be, our brains are craving those data points. So I consciously try to find times in the day, sometimes when you run, um, but it might also just be when you're taking a shower. It might also be right before you go to bed. It might be when you just have half an hour to rest and you're about to grab that phone and you say, you know what? Let me just be with myself. Let me talk to myself.
0: Do you talk to yourself out loud?
1: <laughs> no. Uh, I don't think I talk to myself out loud.
0: Because in Judaism, uh, the reason you pray out loud is not so that God could hear you only. It's so that you
1: could also hear yourself. That's beautiful. I'll start paying attention to that, but I think it's more uh, just... Focusing, yeah.
0: You are a magician.
1: A magician, yeah.
0: Magicians are entertainers. Making magic requires practice and repetition. In what way has magic influenced your business?
1: I think magic is definitely a big part of my personality and who I am, both because it requires you to be innovative and creative and because of what you brought forth about how you need to be disciplined and practice, practice, practice. I think it's fun. And it also connects me to my dad because my dad used to teach me magic when I was a little kid. And then uh, when I was in college and and studying abroad in Europe, I paid my trips through Europe by doing magic shows in the streets of Paris and in uh, Bulgaria and just had a lot of adventures doing magic.
0: What's one of your favorites?
1: One of my favorite magic? Yeah. What, uh, changing the time on your watch. Yeah. I love I love card tricks also.
0: Speaking of cards, you have a, a kind card in your wallet. What is the meaning of this kind card? So
1: this is our latest in our effort to try to find ways to creatively inspire kindness. The challenge in doing that is that kindness, by its very essence, the reason it works is that it's a pure act where there's no ulterior purposes. So how do you inspire kindness without destroying its authenticity. So we've been toying with it for 10 years and our latest is this card's called kind awesome cards where if we spot somebody that has done a kind act already either to you or to a stranger mm-hmm. then you celebrate them and say you know that was really kind of you and in appreciation for your kindness we'd like to give you this card and you go to the website enter this code and we send you a couple kind bars plus another kind awesome card that you can then give to somebody else to celebrate when they when you spot an act of kindness that they do.
0: What's one act of kindness you spotted on the street the other day uh, which caused you to take out this card and give it to a stranger?
1: Um, somebody seated their taxi to my wife and I. I was very, very nice. And I (laughs) went into my, well, and they're like, oh, no, no, that's not necessary. They thought I was going to give them money. And I'm like, no, 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 this is what it is. And then they were really happy. Or somebody uh, seats their seat in the subway to somebody else. or, Or just, you know, on the sixth line on the subway lately, I don't know, people can get really mean to each other. And it's become like this laboratory of, like... Social behavior I don't know if you ever saw The Batman movie With the Joker Where he's like Creating these social experiments In Metropolis And people are like Are they going to do The right thing Or the wrong thing In the sixth train A lot of times People are not doing The right thing They're being really Jerkish to each other The trains are really delayed And it's kind of scary So when somebody Behaves really kindly In those environments I, I, I give them one of those cards
0: On, this, on the sixth train The Lexington Avenue in line in New York City You mentioned your wife Briefly She's a doctor What kind of doctor is she?
1: She's a transplant nephrologist
0: Ah, kidney.
1: Yeah, you know it. When I first met her and she's a nephrologist, I'm like, "What oh, is that people that deal with the dead bodies? Like, no, that's a necrologist. I'm not a nephrologist. It's kidney doctor. I'm like, okay, good to know.
0: Mm. And a mother of four.
1: And a mother of four and an incredible partner, the sweetest woman in the world. And she goes to the Bronx to help uh, for her job as a transplant nephrologist. And uh, she's on call this week.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Jessica, thank you so much for having those really interesting questions.
0: My guest has been Daniel Lubetzky. Coming up, we'll meet Aya Badir, founder of Little Bits. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Aya Badir, founder of Little Bits, a hardware company that produces electronic modules that snap together with magnets. These electronic modules are accessible to both children and adults, and the company's goal is to encourage creativity and invention by making electronics easier to use. Little Bits was launched in 2011, and the kits are sold in more than 70 countries. Aya graduated with a degree in computer engineering from American University in Beirut and has a master's from the MIT Media Lab. Aya is also an interactive artist. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You grew up in Lebanon. You were always encouraged down the engineering route. Uh, How come? So I
2: actually wanted to be a designer uh, when I was in school, but I was very good at math and science, and so my family, my parents and my teachers, uh, told me that I owed it to myself to be an engineer. And I went into engineering because it was sort of the thing to do. But very quickly I realized that engineering was very dry and very much not creative, and I felt like there was a big piece of my brain, like my crea- the creative portion that was really not engaged. And so those were the seeds of some of the work that I did- ended up doing with Little Bits.
0: And also, uh, you are an interactive artist, meaning that you are using technology in your art. Mm. And your focus is on perceptions of Arabian identity. One of your works is Arabia. Tell me about that. <laughs> so that was
2: a project that came from a personal place. I had uh, moved to the US uh, for a couple of years and uh, and more frequently than i thought i would get comments from people that say oh you're arab how come you're not wearing a veil oh oh uh, you're uh, you're arab uh, are you able to belly dance and I would get these like very polarized cliches thrown at me all the time and i'd never thought of these things when I was growing up and so arabia was basically a uh, a piece that that I developed for a fashion show. Uh, uh, it's a it's a buddy dancing outfit, and you have the uh, the model, the dancer comes out uh, to the stage and performs this really beautiful, very sensual dance and And then, at one point, she flips a switch on her outfit, and through motors, the outfit starts to close. Uh, on itself and turns into a burqa, just showing these two extremes of stereotypes associated with Arab women.
0: You're using technology and electronics in your artwork, playing with the two, and that's what you're encouraging people to do uh, through little bits, basically, just to create and be inventive. Uh, What are some examples of some of the projects that the general public creates with little bit kits? At
2: the root, what we are doing Our mission is to put the power of electronics in everyone's hands and make anyone an inventor. We've been described as Lego for electronics or Lego for the 21st century. So they are bricks uh, that instead of being plastic, are lights and sounds and sensors and motors. And with the same ease, you can start using them. Kids have used them to learn about electronics or to create uh, line-following robots. Uh, They've created, uh, yesterday we saw um, a kid who made a flute that makes uh, soap, bubbles uh, as he's blowing into the flute uh, through a fan uh, and uh, and some sensors. Also things that, you know, there's a lot of energy and attention towards the Internet of Things now. And we do have, uh, with little bits, this ability to attach the Internet to anything so that you can bring appliances or devices at home to life and make them controllable with your phone. So we've seen people, for example, make something like a remote pet feeder so that if you're at home, at the office, and your pet is hungry, you can, through your phone, press a button, and have a little motor turn uh, a cup of food uh, for your pets uh, so you can feed them remotely.
0: You, in 2008, came up with the idea or the early prototypes for Little Bits, but it wasn't until 2011 that you actually launched the company, and it was your boyfriend who encouraged you to kind of stop everything else that you were doing. Uh, What's the story there? So in uh, in about April 2011 I had uh, been working
2: on a little bit as a project as one of my projects for a few years and I'd gone uh, and found the factory to make it and we were doing was doing prototypes and in April 2011 I got the first shipment uh, of a prototype from a factory that I'd been working with in China and for the first time I basically saw that Uh, Little Bits was manufacturable Um, and simultaneously um, I'd been getting a a good amount of press that was interested in the concept uh, of kind of making electronics uh, accessible to to kids and and adults and so people would write in wanting to place orders and so my boyfriend said, um, you have a, a product that's manufacturable and you have a customer that wants it, you need to stop everything else you're doing and start a company and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, why not
0: (laughs) is he still your boyfriend he's my husband now yes where did you meet him I met him in New
2: York actually. He uh, co-curated a show with uh, MoMA with Fa- Paula Antonelli called uh, Design and the Elastic Mind that was about design and science. He was chairing the conference and I was giving a talk there.
0: In 2011 shortly after you launched there was an exhibit at MoMA or the Museum of Modern Art where Little Bits was displayed and Little Bits is now in the permanent collection. Can you tell me about that?
2: Sure. So there was um, an exhibit called Talk to Me by uh, Paola Antonelli, who's the head design curator. And the exhibit was about the interaction between people and things. And Little Bits was on display uh, in that exhibit. And it was a huge, huge honor because it was with some of the greatest design and technology pieces of the day. Shortly thereafter, they uh, sent me an email saying that they wanted to acquire Little Bits into the permanent collection of the museum.
0: One of the germs for Little Bits was... creation of the concrete brick, which you've talked about before, invented in 1868. What is the connection of the concrete brick to your modules? I believe that, you know, the world keeps changing and the technologies of the day
2: are moving fast. And so in the early 1900s, the technology of the day was a concrete brick. That was the way we started to build larger, more complex structures, one brick at a time. And a little bit after, after Lego came out with a play version of that brick uh, in order to uh, empower young and the young at heart to be able to play with that technology that was really ruling the world and be able to make buildings and bridges and these beautiful structures one brick at a time.
0: And they were called the automatic bonding brick? Uh,
2: automatic binding brick was the first uh, first name that they had. And now the world has changed again. Now the brick is no longer a cement brick. The brick is now a transistor, which is something that is driving all the technologies around us, the devices we carry, are free phones, our alarm systems, they all, at their node have a transistor. And so what is the play or the imagination uh, version of that brick? How can we make put that in the hands of the kids and kids at heart uh, so that they can kind of understand the world and reinvent it? And that's sort of what drove a lot of the work on Little Bits.
0: What were a, a few pivot points for you for the company where you felt like you were getting traction from the public? Um, MoMA was definitely one uh, in, in September two thousand
2: eleven. Uh, uh, basically, it was the day uh, I launched the company, and at the same time, we were acquired into the permanent collection. So we it really kind of started us off on a on a really strong uh, footing, and and with a lot of uh, confidence and and um, and kind of a big stage to play on. Um, and then in February two thousand twelve, uh, I became a TED fellow, and I gave a talk at TED, uh, which was also a pivotal moment. It was really a chance to talk about why this is important and why this is important for society, not as a gadget or a toy. Uh, It's important as a new way of thinking.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Aya Badir, founder of Little Bits, a company that sells electronic modules that snap together using magnets. These modules are generally easy to use, making them appealing to the general population, both adults and children. The company was started in 2011, and the kits are sold in more than 70 Countries, Aya is also an interactive artist raised in Beirut, Lebanon.
2: You asked actually on pivotal moments. There is yeah. one more early on in the company when when we launched, we got an email from NASA, from the education department at NASA, saying that they wanted to collaborate with us to uh, create kits to make space and Earth exploration more attractive to kids. And they came to us saying, you know, we need your help. And that was a huge moment and we collaborated together to create a kit called the Space Kit, which replicates some, um, uh, to a high degree of fidelity, uh, some experiments that are happening at NASA that make this wonder around space and Earth more palatable and more understandable. What's an example? You know, in order to wake up uh, astronauts in uh, in the space station, NASA sends wirelessly uh, some music to play Play music as an alarm. And we have a little experiment where you have a microphone and you're playing uh, music from your phone or an MP3 player, and you're
0: transmitting this wirelessly through infrared to a speaker somewhere else. Ironic that your family really pushed you hard to become an engineer and go down this route. And you <laughs> did it resentfully uh, <laughs> as you really wanted to pursue your art. And now you're back where you started absolutely with yeah. a twist. Yeah, but with a twist. What does your mother make of, of this?
2: Uh, my mother has been a huge, huge influence and inspiration on me. When I was growing up, she was doing her master's um, uh, uh, when I was about six or eight. So I would come home and uh, and we would do homework together. And so even though I grew up in the Arab world, I never had any idea um, that there was sort of a different career choices that women and men made. And she's very supportive today as well.
0: You are part of the maker movement or the open hardware movement. Can you describe that? Uh, the maker movement is really a movement that started around this
2: idea that we should not be just consuming objects around us, that humans were made to be creative and to make with their hands. And that's how you learn. It's how you connect with friends. It's how you uh, invent. And the maker movement is all about sort of making things for yourselves, whether it's uh, arts and crafts, whether it's making electronics. It's really about putting the power back in the hands of the people. Instead of just the large companies. I do remember kind of early in the 2000s, you started to really see a world where everything was a screen and everything was virtual and every relationship was happening online. Um, and for a lot of people, myself included, that's not a that's not a pretty world that I would like to live in. Uh, I believe in the tactile. I believe in feeling the satisfaction uh, of, of having made something. And so What happened is is I think that uh, we realized that software in kind of the cloud or in virtual space without it being on objects and in objects around us becomes really intimidating and and almost in not human. Uh, And so now the pendulum swung back again to say all of the things we learned from software, how can we now embed them into devices of all sizes uh, and
0: spaces that are around us? You attended the iBeam Art and Tech Center in New York. How important was that in the evolution of Little Bits?
2: And what is it? Um, iBeam is an art and technology lab and and center in, in New York. That was a very, very, very pivotal moment in my life. I had so I had done engineering and then I went to the Media Lab at MIT and was doing sort of engineering and art and and doing a lot of uh, research around that subject and then I graduated in 2006 and and uh, and got a job in finance uh, and I did finance for two years and I was very very miserable um, and I didn't want to be doing PowerPoints and and meeting with hedge funds and so I quit uh, and I got a fellowship at ibeam and at ibeam I picked up these ideas of incorporating electronic uh, with with arts, uh, and then little bits was uh, was a second project, just to think about, you know, how do I put this ability to use electronics for for creativity? How do I put this ability in the hands of other people, not just myself? which which is sort of the the genesis of Little Bits.
0: In addition to selling these modules, the community aspect of Little Bits has really developed. Um, you have something called a Maker Hub, where people are on your site sharing what they've made, uh, as well as BitLab, which is basically an app store for hardware. So on the first piece, the community, basically, you know, because LittleBits um,
2: is essentially a system of these electronic bricks, you know, the point is not the bricks. The point is what you make with them. And so we have a space on the website where there are thousands of projects that people have uploaded with step-by-step tutorials for things you can make. You then have kids that are eight years old and adults that are forty-five years old collaborating on an idea.
0: What's an example?
2: Uh, we have one of our uh, community members that made basically a, a surf weather uh, alert uh, because he wanted to to know uh, when it was a good uh, uh, tide uh, to, to go surfing. Uh, and so basically uh, connected this motor to make a display uh, that's uh, uh, that's on a beach uh, that reads uh, from weather data to get like high tide, low tide, and basically creates these notifications that go back and forth and tell him now it's, it's a good time to surf. And that's an example of a collaboration that was across different ages and, uh, and experiences.
0: I want to talk about the, d- the design of the product. There are white circuit boards with very colorful connectors, uh, pink and blue and green. Can you talk to, to me about some of those choices?
2: Electronics are always ugly. They're always green or black, and there's wires sticking out everywhere. And uh, they, you know, they're, they're they're the thing you put inside something. You make a shell around it to cover them. Um And part of sort of the challenge was how do you make electronics not intimidating? How do you make them inviting? And so, uh, one of the tools to uh, cross that hurdle is to make them beautiful, um, make them exposed, so they're open. They're they're not hidden under any box. They're white because it's it's uh, it's 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 less sort of scary. They have this handwritten font on them because they makes them feel human, and they have these neon colored connectors because we want them to be gender neutral. People gravitate towards them that never would have put their hand on electronics, whether it's uh, kids. Kids, particularly young girls, uh, but also uh, entrepreneurs, designers, artists, people that have no engineering training whatsoever or no interest in engineering.
0: You mentioned gender neutrality. Uh, in what ways are you mindful of encouraging girls to pick up the product? Getting more uh, girls and women into technology is
2: a hidden agenda of the company. Uh, But we don't wear it on our sleeve. What we do do is make very, very deliberate choices to make sure that the product, the communication around the product, and everything the company stands for is egalitarian.
0: I want to talk about venture capital for a moment. Uh, You've raised a couple... So fun. (laughs) You've raised a few rounds of venture capital. What have been your impressions of that process along, along the way? Raising money is not easy in general.
2: Um, but in addition to that, raising money for a hardware company is difficult. I remember uh, early on in some in one of my pitches, uh, one investor, very very prominent investor, told me, "I love your business. I love everything you're doing. I think it's going to be a smashing success. But I can't invest in you. Your business is too much of a real business for us. Uh, there is the reality. There's physical product and raw material and shipping and taxes and warehouses. Uh, and you know the the barrier to being successful is much higher than making a piece of software and." Getting a million people to use it. So the hardware component adds to the complexity of raising money. Um, I don't actively think about it, but there is an extra stigma uh, uh, of being a woman. What is one example? Uh, I'd rather not uh, proliferate the anecdotes and instead I'll say what I learned and what I think is a proactive way to solve it. I think that the generation before us fought a very hard fight and we stand on their shoulders uh, for being able to do the things that we're able to do. But now we have a different fight to fight, which is do great work. Mm-hmm. And I think that the best way to succeed is something that actually Sarah Silverman said once in one of her shows, which is just be undeniable. Be undeniable and then nobody can come in and say, but she's a woman. It will not happen. Um, and then the, the, the third uh, uh, kind of uh, reason why it's difficult to raise money is uh, I got a, a good piece of advice early on which is not all money is equal. You can get money from anywhere, but getting the right kind of money or smart money uh, is transformative.
0: Your modules allow you to do a a whole array of things, one of which most recently is to make music. And you have all these modules in front of me. Can you make some music for me?
2: Sure, so what I have is a power bit which is blue, um, and I'm going to snap it into an oscillator which is uh, generating the sound wave and a speaker. And now I'm tuning the oscillator, and then I can put a keyboard, add a sequencer.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) My guest has been Aya Badir, founder of Little Bits. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.